Hello and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Reese, and on each episode, I investigate a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And on this episode, we are heading back to the realm of the fairy to take a look at the secret origins of those mischievous, nasty little creatures known as the elves. In the Welsh language, they are known as the Asasson, and I think we need to clear something up right from the start. When I say elves, E-L-V-E-S, elves, I don't mean the kind of elves we are familiar with nowadays from Games Workshop games or Lord of the Rings films. These are nasty, mischievous little creatures. They are not tall, suave, elegant creatures who run around shooting bows and arrows and getting into arguments with dwarves and things. Although, did you know there is a connection? There's there's always a tenuous Welsh connection, but there is a connection with Tolkien's noble elves, as well as that dwarf as it goes, because Gimli in the Lord of the Rings films is played by John Rhys Davis. But sticking with the elves, J.R.R. Tolkien who wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and all of those other wonderful Middle-earth books, was greatly inspired by Welsh mythology, by Welsh culture, by the Welsh language, as he was with lots of other languages and cultures around the world. But when it comes to the language, if you listen carefully to the way some of the elves speak in The Lord of the Rings and the other connected films, they might sound suspiciously Welsh. And that is because Tolkien did indeed use parts of the Welsh language, as as with other languages. I believe there's some Scandinavian languages mixed up in there as well. I, I, I think I'll have to double check that, but certainly there is some Welsh mixed up in some of the elvish tongue. But sadly, we are not talking about those elves on this episode. Maybe I'll, I'll save up a full Tolkien episode for the future because there are a lot more Welsh references in Tolkien's wonderful world. There are entire books written on it, so maybe I'll save that for the future. But for now, we are going to stick with those nasty, mischievous elves, the Asasson. And this is the latest in my series of semi-regular features looking at the writing of Wirt Sykes. Now, Wirt Sykes is one of my folkloric heroes. He is an American who moved to Cardiff in the Victorian age and spent his time while here collecting bits of Welsh folklore and folk stories and things, which, if it weren't for Sykes, might well have been lost to time. So we owe Sykes a great debt of gratitude. And I certainly do, because he's given me lots of lots of pleasure in the reading of my research, and he also gives me things to talk about on this podcast, of course. And what I'd like to do with this episode is to start by looking at some of the more sort of the, the, the formalities. Let's get those out of the way. Let's look at where this name comes from, Asaslon. And we know some quite interesting details about their lives. We know where the best places are to find them. We also know what kind of food they like to eat and all these other quirky little details. And we'll wrap things up with a, a wonderful little story which Sykes found 
purely by chance when he popped into a pub for a pint on the outskirts of Cardiff. That, that's the kind of man Sykes was. He'd just, he'd just pop into a pub and walk out with these wonderful folktales. But first, let's get the formalities out of the way. Let's look at the origin of the Welsh elves. Now, as regular listeners will know, on the last episode about the Welsh fairy folk, and if you haven't listened to it, don't worry, it doesn't affect this episode at all. Although, if you do enjoy this episode, you can go back and check it out afterwards. That was episode 25, and I, I've recorded quite a few episodes now about the Welsh fairy folk at Tig. There's probably enough episodes to keep you to keep you going for a week now, I'd imagine. But if you do enjoy this one, please go back and check out the other ones after. Afterwards, but just to get everyone up to speed quickly, just to rejog your memory, I mentioned on the last one that Sykes differentiated between five different types of fairy. The first ones are the Athlason, the elves. The others are the Coblanai, the mine fairies. The Bubachod, or household fairies. The Gragedd Anun, or fairies of the lakes and streams. And number five, the Gwythion, or the mountain fairies. And of those five, it is the first ones, the Athlason, the elves, that we are going to concentrate on in this episode. So let's dive straight into that folklore. That's enough waffling and build up and me getting distracted with Tolkien. Let's crack on with it. Let's take a look at the origin of that name. What does Athlason mean and what do these things even look like? Well, Sykes describes them as pygmy elves who haunt the groves and valleys and correspond pretty closely with the English elves. So the English elves just over the border share many similarities with the Welsh Athlon, and we are told the English name, the name elves, was probably derived from the Welsh language, from the word L-E-L, -E a spirit, and elf, E-L-F, an element. There is a whole brood of words of this class in the Welsh language, he tells us, expressing every variety of flowing, gliding, spirituality, devilry, angelhood, and goblinism. And I, I love the word goblinism. I'm going to have to use that more often now. But Athlason, the plural of Ethith, so a single elf is Ethith, Athlason is a bunch of them, is also doubtless allied with the Hebrew, and I'll spell this for you because I have no chance of pronouncing it correctly, and it is E-L-I-L-I-M. Now, I am fluent in English, I am fluent in Welsh, but I am ashamed to admit I am not fluent in Hebrew, which is why I might struggle with some of these words. But anyway, if, if you're keeping track of this, what Sykes is telling us is that the word elves that we are all familiar with, the word elves is derived from the Welsh language. And the Welsh language word for elves, athlon, which is not so much derived, but has some connection with this old Hebrew word. And anyway, that's enough of the pronunciation stuff out of the way. We'll get into the fun stories and things now. And the very first mention of the athlon in any kind of literature ever comes courtesy of David Ap. 
Willem, a major, major figure in Welsh poetry. Well, not, not, not just in Welsh, just in medieval poetry. And he writes back in the year 1340. And this, this short snippet has been translated from the Welsh language, which is what David Ap Gwilym would have written it in originally. But in the English language, it goes like this. There was in every hollow a hundred wry-mouthed elves. And once again, quickly, there was in every hollow a hundred wry-mouthed elves. Now, that's his account of trouble that he had with these mischievous creatures in the mist. And he does establish something here, which is a very distinctive part of the Atlathlon. And they are seen in hollows, sleepy or otherwise. They are lurking in hollows, in misty hollows outdoors. And that does separate them from, say, the other elves you might find in the caves or in homes and places. The Atlathlon much like the headless horsemen are haunting the hollows. Or to put it into Sykes's own words, Sykes tells us that the hollows or little dingles are still the places where the peasant, on their way home from the fair or the market or wherever they might have been, looks for these atlatlon but fails to find them. I guess they're, they're pretty good at hiding in these, these hollows. And we are also told what food they eat. There is fairy butter, a meaning tulith tig, as it is in Welsh. And that is a butter resembling substance found at great depths in the crevices of limestone rocks. Seems like a lot of hard work to get your butter, doesn't it? But you can find this fairy butter at great depths in crevices in limestone rocks. But it's not just butter. There is fairy food, boyd atlatlon, or elf food. And I don't think it will surprise anyone when I tell you what their favorite food is. Take a wild guess. It is indeed the toadstool, which doesn't involve climbing into caves and going into crevices to find, but the toadstool, or poisonous mushrooms, which sounds like quite a meal, doesn't it? That fairy butter and that fairy food there. Now, along with their food and their butter, he also records what they wore as gloves on their hands, gloves, which is quite specific. He doesn't record what trousers they wear or what shoes they wear, but he does specify which gloves they wear, which in Welsh are minig athlathon, and in English they are the bells of the foxglove. So when you see the foxglove, which does come with a warning because the leaves are a strong sedative, but they are also the gloves of the Atlathlon. And another unique aspect about the Atlathlon, about the elves, which Sykes tells us, is that they have a queen. They have a reigning monarch. And this is something you don't find with other variations of fairy folk there is no overriding queen for all of them but there is a queen just for the atlatlon and sykes connects this queen of the atlatlon the queen of the elves with william shakespeare and he tells us that when it comes to welsh folklore shakespeare's use of welsh folklore it should be noted was extensive and peculiarly faithful so it's not just Tolkien who was inspired by these old tales of 
elves from days gone by in Wales, William Shakespeare was also inspired. And it just goes to show that some of the greatest English language, some of the greatest English writers were inspired by these tales. And what Sykes also tells us, which is quite strange, is that Shakespeare was actually quite loose. And that's Sykes's word, not mine. Don't don't get upset, any any Shakespeareans. But Shakespeare was quite loose with his use of English folklore. By all accounts, he chopped and changed whatever he wanted to with English folklore. But when it came to Welsh folklore, he stayed quite true to these old fairy superstitions. So maybe the next time you are reading or watching or listening to a work by Shakespeare, maybe you can differentiate where these bits come from. I'll be honest, I love, love, love Shakespeare, but not to the extent where I can verify anything of what Sykes is saying. I wouldn't like to guess where these bits of folklore and fairy stories in his plays have come from. That is that is way beyond me. Maybe maybe there are some Shakespearean experts out there who can help me and tell me which bits Sykes might be talking about here. But anyway, that's enough background and build-up. Let us now turn our attention to that fantastical tale which Sykes picked up one day in a pub just outside of Cardiff. And to begin at the beginning, it all started when Sykes was walking along the River Ely one day, and he decided to stop in a pub which was called the Huntsman's Rest Inn, which I believe is still there with a slightly different name, but don't don't quote me on that. If anyone if anyone does go drinking along the River Ely and knows this, please let me know. We can we can go for a pint one day. But there was a group of what Sykes describes as humble folk, some good old honest humble folk having a good time in the pub. And after a long walk himself through the green lanes, he sat himself down by the chimney side, and they were all sitting there as well, drinking their tankards of ale and smoking their long clay pipes. Which, to me, all sounds a bit Lord of the Rings again, doesn't it, really? Sitting there by the side of the river, drinking from their tankards, smoking from their long pipes. But anyway, now they were talking amongst themselves about their dogs, their horses, the crops, the hard times, and the prospect of bettering themselves by emigration to America. A popular thing to talk about, I guess, in the 1900s. A lot of Welsh people did indeed emigrate to America. And Sykes, not so interested in talking about dogs and horses and crops and hard times, but he, he knew a thing or two about emigrating to America because he had, well, he'd done the opposite. He had emigrated to Cardiff, even if it was only temporarily, and as an American himself, he could talk to them about this. He could answer all their questions about America. Now, having made their acquaintance and established what he calls a friendly footing, he then led the conversation into the domain of folklore. A bit like I do nowadays when I meet new people in the pub. <laughs> Let's turn the conversation towards folklore, shall we? But anyway, back to Sykes, and he tells us that, as a result, his book is richer in illustration, in consequences, because he picked up many a tale that day, which he included in this mammoth work of folklore. And this is the first tale he recounts from that encounter, and it is a tale 
of the Atlatlon, as related to him by the the humble folk. And this story concerns a farmer called Roly Poo, which is a wonderful name, Roly R O W L I Poo. Roly Poo, who lived on a certain farm in Glamorganshire, as the counties were then. And Roly Poo was famous. He was known far and wide for his evil luck. What we, we would probably call bad luck now, but anything he did would just go wrong. We are told that nothing prospered that he turned his hand to. His crops proved poor, though his neighbours might be good. His roof leaked in spite of all his mending. His walls remained damp when everyone else's walls were dry. And above all, his wife was so feeble she could do no work. Which to me sounds like bad, bad luck for his wife rather than him or bad luck for the two of them. But anyway, things were not going well for Roly Poo. But his fortunes at last seemed so hard that he resolved to sell out and clear out no matter at what loss, and tried to better himself in another country. Much like those humble folk who were talking to Sykes, Roly Poo, at the end of his tether, wanted to flee Wales, he wanted to flee Cymru, and to go to somewhere, anywhere else, to better his fortunes. So, as Roly was sitting on his wall one day, hard by his cottage, musing over his sad lot, he was accosted by a little man who asked him what was the matter. Now, Roly had no idea where this voice came from. He looked around, and before he could answer the Ethlis, I'm sure you knew where this was going. This is indeed an Ethlis, one of the Atlatlon. And that little creature, that little Ethlis, said to Roly, There, there, hold your tongue. I know more about you than you ever dreamed of knowing. You're in trouble, and you're going away, but you may stay, now I've spoken to you. So what this athlete is saying to Roly is that, look, I know you're planning on running away, escaping your troubles, but you don't need to. Things are going to be good. Things are going to be better than good, as long as you listen to my instructions, which are... Only bid your good wife leave the candle burning when she goes to bed and say no more about it. Mysterious words there from the athlete. So don't, don't run away. Don't try and escape your troubles that way. Just tell your wife to leave that candle burning and all will be well. And with that, the athlete kicked up his heels and disappeared. Of course, the farmer did as he was bid. And from that day, he prospered. Can you believe it? Every night, Catty Jones, his wife, another wonderful name, Roly and Catty, set the candle out, swept the hearth, and went to bed. And every night, the fairies would come and do her baking and brewing, her washing and mending, sometimes even furnishing their own tools and materials. The farmer was now always clean of linen and whole of garb. He had good bread and good beer. What more could you want in life than good bread and good beer? And he felt like a new man and he worked like one as well. So he wasn't taking it easy. All these benefits had made him a better worker as well. Everything prospered with him now as nothing had before. It was the total opposite. His crops were good. 
His barns were tidy, his cattle were sleek, his pigs the fattest in the parish. So things went on for three years. One night, Catty Jones took it into her head that she must have a peep at the fair family who did her work for her. And, curiosity conquering prudence, she arose while Roly Pew lay storing and peeped through the crack in the door. Now, I'm sure you can imagine this is, this is not a good thing to do. Don't, don't push your luck when everything is going so well. But there they were, a jolly company of Atlatlon, working away like mad and laughing and dancing as madly as they worked. Catty was so amused that, in spite of herself, yes, she's, she's going to make things even worse, she fell to laughing too. And at sound of her voice, the Atlatlon scattered like mist before the wind, leaving the room empty. They never came back anymore. But on the plus side, the farmer was now prosperous and his bad luck never returned to plague him. So I guess you could say, in a way, he just ended up being being normal, really. He was having lots of bad luck and then lots of good luck to balance it out. And then neither, neither, just a normal, happy, we assume, life. And Sykes tells us that the resemblance of this tale to many he has encountered will at once be noted by the student of comparative folklore. And any hardcore folklorist listening to this might well think, yes, I've heard a similar story in, in, in Cornwall, in Germany, and wherever it might be. They will also observe that it trenches on the domain of another class of fairy. A fairy that we haven't touched upon yet, and that is the Bubach, or household fairy, because of course they were in the farmer's house doing all the work for them, even though he met them initially outside where the Atlatlon dwell. Now, from Sykes's point of view, this is a slight problem because he has classified these five different types of fairies. Two of them appear to cross over here, and while he calls them one, they could be the other. And for the purposes of this podcast, from our point of view, it doesn't really matter. But if, like Sykes, you do take these matters a little bit more seriously and you do like to get things correct, that might be a little detail that might drive you mad. In which case, maybe I should wrap things up about now and just leave you ponder whether or not there is a crossover between the Atlatlon and the Bubachod, or the Bubachod and the Atlatlon, and maybe we can discuss that further on the next Tulloth Tig episode, when we look more closely at the Bubachod instead. Now, as always, if you don't want to miss the next Tuluth Tig episode, please consider hitting the subscribe button and then you will never miss an episode ever. And if you have any comments to make on that about the Atlatlon, about the Bubachod, or just about life in general, I'm quite easy to track down. If you want to say hello, do a search for Mark Race, put the word journalist or author in, and I will pop up on a search engine or on social media, and we can chat online. All of which just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varian Amgrando, I've been Mark Race. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast. It's the best, it's the beautiful, it's the only Ghosts and Folklore podcast beaming to you from Wales to the world. 
keep an eye out for those Athlatlon the next time you walk past a sleepy hollow. And if there's any Bubachod in your house making you wealthy beyond your wildest dreams, don't sneak downstairs to spy on them. Until next time, no star. Mm-hmm.